This is Seeds for Success, a show where we have a good yarn about ag life with producers who are having a go. On the show, you'll hear from farmers in New South Wales who are out there battling the elements, making tough calls and getting the job done. You'll get a laugh out of some of their stories and also pick up some know-how along the way. I'm your host, Narrowly Brennan. Today, we're having a yarn with Nathan Border. Nathan farms alongside his family on their property, Oriel, a 2,800-hectare property just outside of Parks, near Canumbla. In the last 15 years, the farm has shifted from a mixed farming system to a cropping-only enterprise, with the motto, do as much as you can, as quick as you can. In this episode, Nathan describes the process they've gone through, shifting to a cropping-only operation, discussing how it has enabled the adoption of practices like chaff decks and summer cropping in an effort to maintain a proactive business. You'll also hear how these changes have brought about its fair share of production improvements and some new challenges. Local Land Services Cropping Officer Tim Bartimo caught up with Nathan on the back veranda at Oriel for this chat. Well, g'day everyone. Welcome back to the podcast. Today, we're joined here by Nathan Border out at the family farm Oriel. And thanks for having us out here, Nathan. How are you going? Yeah, well, thank you, Tim. Actually, quite a good day. You can hear the birds in the background. Can you tell us a bit about your family farm and how you're affiliated with it? Yeah, so it's my wife's family farm here at Ganumbla. We're um, yeah, farming about 2,800 hectares of crop. We're mostly focused on cropping, not on livestock. Um, and we have been historically winter cropping, but just tried sorghum for the first time last season. Yeah, very good. So how long has the have animals been off the place? Or has it been like that for a long time? Yeah, probably about 10 years now, Tim. I think, um, yeah, my passion's more in growing crops than animals. And yeah, I wasn't a good enough manager to manage the livestock and the cropping. So we've just tried to focus and keep it simple. Yeah, because you've got a, quite an extensive agronomy background. So you're kind of sticking to what you're good at. Yeah, trying to stick at what we're passionate about and what we're good at and what we're influencing is only a small part of the game. It's the rainfall and everything else that makes the big difference. But um, yeah, we try and do as much as we can to influence the outcome. On Oriole, can you kind of describe what are the, the soil types that you have across the farm? Yeah, so we're fortunate to run it all as, as one block, but there still is quite a wide variation in soil types. Um, yeah, not as cracking and heavy as what you'd find at Moree or somewhere like that. Right, so how have the last few seasons treated you here at Oriole and what's 2023 been like so far? Yeah, I guess we've been farming here for nearly 15 years now, Tim, and it's been a real roller coaster ride. Yeah, we've gone from it being too dry to too wet and, yeah, haven't made much money in between. But, yeah, we're looking forward to that average sort of season, which, uh, yeah, this year is shaping to be. We've come out of, out of some really wet seasons the last few years where it's been too wet. But, yeah, this year the crops are are in on time, they're, they're looking good and just had 25 mils over the last sort of few weeks. So the crops have got a lot of potential. We just need a, a good rain to finish them off. And so in your farming system, like you've got a quite broad, like you've got some summer cropping you mentioned as well as some winter cropping. What do you see are the biggest challenges in your farming enterprise that you come across? Yeah, we're trying to work with nature. So that's the most challenging component of farming in general. Yeah, like I said, we've gone from too dry to too wet. So we try and conserve what moisture we do get. That works against us in a wet year, obviously. We're battling with weeds, but none have sort of uh, limited our production too much. 
just the normal constraints that farmers are dealing with. Yeah, we're trying to build a robust rotation so that we can keep on top of our hard-to-kill weeds, keep our nutrition up without trying to have to put it all on a bag. So pulses are a big part of our program. We'll never be able to make it rain or, or fix the big constraints, but we try and work with what we can. You've been here personally farming for about 15 years, you said. And what was the transition like before you came to what it is now? So was it more mixed farming in the past versus purely cropping now? Yeah, so Oriel was run very similar to a lot of farms in this area. It had a huge component of merino sheep, a self-replacing flock. That was my father-in-law's passion and he was passionate about growing crops as well. So he would typically be growing canola, wheat, barley as his main crops and that would be in a rotation with Lucent to provide feed for the livestock. And so how did you find that transition? Because we're talking before in the car as you did a bit of a tour around the place and even, you know, just recently you've talked about wanting to be proactive rather than reactive. How have you found that transition to a cropping only and being able to enable that proactivity to challenges that come up as part of this system? We started focusing more on cropping and less on livestock just because that was, I guess, my interest. We had staff constraints as well. We had a brother in or my brother-in-law that was working on the farm had an accident which took him off farm and he's still recovering from that brain injury. So, yeah, there's been lots of different things at play, but we've gradually transitioned from a mixed farm to a cropping-only farm, one, because that was my passion, and two, because of logistics and staff constraints. But, yeah, we've seen an improvement in the soil over that time. Um, Not cultivating as much has really softened up the soil Uh, Moving to a controlled traffic system has reduced that wheel track compaction that we're getting across the paddock. Yeah, I think we've got a lot healthier soils now than what we've had in the past and crops are responding in yield when we get the season that goes with us. So can you walk me through that transition to controlled traffic in particular? What was the steps that you took? Did you just, you know, one season you're going everywhere with gear, then the next season righto, or did you have to adjust machinery and that sort of thing to make sure everything is running in a complementary way? It was a gradual process and it was a slow process over quite a few years. Um, For a lot of years, our harvester was on the system and our boom spray was on the system, but our air seeder wasn't. I guess my philosophy is do as much as you can, as quick as you can, but yeah, with machinery prices where they are, it's hard to go all in in one season. It, It took us quite a few years to get to where we are now. One of the reasons, one of the things, sorry, we were talking about earlier is part of that proactivity is wanting to stay on top of weeds, particularly in a cropping only mm-hmm. system. And so there's many tools in the toolbox that we can use to control weeds. But one in particular that's interesting is that you've moved into chaff decking as part of a harvest weed seed management control option. Can you explain to people listening what chaff decking is and what that involves? Yeah, so there's a lot of good um, resources out there and the Weed Smart Week coming up will emphasise a lot of that. There's a lot of different tools that you can use to keep on top of weeds. There's a lot of constraints in farming, but weeds is obviously a big one. We've tried a lot of different tools like double knocking. We've tried crop competition. We've moved to a 10-inch planter now instead of a 12-inch planter. We're using a disc seeder to try and get through more stubble so that we can utilise that mulch effect. And, um, yeah, moving to a chaff deck was just one of those tools that we're trying to utilise along with cropping rotations and other things as well. But the chaff deck is just pulling the chaff off the sieves and putting it in two rows behind the wheels. So that's on a three-metre wheel spacing and there are other benefits from having that chaff there in our summer fallow spray program. We're noticing a lot less dust as well. 
and it's a lot cheaper option than uh, than an impact mill or or other things that people are putting on their machines. So essentially, you're getting the chaff component, which has most of the weeds, as you're picking them up in the header, and you're putting them in a hostile environment on controlled traffic lines that are always getting more and more compaction, so it's hard for them to grow. And then you're able to use other options to get on top of them, whether that's spraying or whatever. I guess it's a simple system that is very complicated when you look at it in a lot of detail. All we're doing is trying to migrate the weeds from the whole paddock into a single area and by putting them on the wheel tracks then that is a very hostile environment like you've mentioned and we concentrate the weed seeds into those tram lines or two lines and then they can be treated separately if they need to. So in a few years' time we may look at spraying those two areas separately and not having to spray the whole paddock. How did you get on to chaff decking? Yeah, there's a lot of different ways that farmers have tackled the harvest seed collection or disposal of, of those weed seeds. Yeah, we started by just unhooking the spreaders basically or disabling the spreaders and just putting a row of, of trash in the paddock and then burning that later on. But there are issues with doing that and we had a couple of escapes of the fire taking the whole paddock out. So I guess we don't have the budget to go to the impact mills yet, but um, we're watching that space carefully and I think as they become more affordable and more reliable, that's probably the natural transition to go from windrow burning to chaff decks to impact mills. Yeah, right. So you actually started with chaff lines, moved to chaff decks and then ideally the Rolls-Royce treatment, as you put it earlier, impact mill. It's kind of the plan, I guess. That's my current plan. Obviously, impact mills have their own issues as well and there's a higher cost component, one, initially investing in the product and two, and with the maintenance on the product. But yeah, with that increasing complexity does come other benefits. So I think the impact mill would be my current Rolls-Royce sort of option. When it comes to chaff ticking, if I'm listening to this and I'm, I'm a producer that doesn't do control traffic, mm-hmm. do you think those two practices go hand in hand? Like if you want to do chaff decking, well, you probably should look into control traffic. Like you kind of assume those two things. Yeah, I guess I'm at the stage now where I think control traffic's a good thing, whether you're chaff decking or not. And my advice to people who haven't started is that you don't have to do it all in one go. There's machinery modifications that you can make to existing machinery or there's purchases that you can make where having the wheel tracks on three metres just makes sense to step into it gradually. So you don't need to be control trafficking to chaff deck. Yeah, it's just that it puts it in a three metre width naturally because that's the width that the header tyres are on. Yeah, I would encourage people to go the full step or go as far as they can. I really like that idea of gradual adoption as you can do it but don't feel like you have to do everything in one go if you're unable to. Just take little steps, little bites to have a real crack at it. Yeah, for quite a lot of years our cedar was not in the match system and everything else was, but um, yeah, we've just recently updated to a single disc machine so we're able to move from an 18-metre planter back to a 12-metre planter and still get the same seeding efficiencies because we're able to travel a little bit faster. So your chaff deck you've been using for a little while, can you describe to the audience what it looks like? Yeah, so we've been using this machine for a number of years now and it's um, it's built by a farmer over in Western Australia, so it's not our skills or expertise, but it's a system of a chute coming off the sieves and then it, the chute gravity feeds onto a deck and then the deck spins left and right to then distribute that chaff along the, the back wheel lines of the header. So it's it's still quite a very simple system. It's just got a 
just got a belt with two hydraulic motors that one goes left and one goes right and, yeah, just deposits it on the ground through a chute system. Is the benefit of having a belt mean you can move a lot of bulk without having to rely solely on gravity but you still have some issues with, say, green canola or something like that? Yeah, so this system is more complex than just a pipe or just a tube. Um, you have got yeah, hydraulic motors and moving belts, but yeah, I still think it's quite a simple system and it does effectively move a lot of chaff. We've harvested crops six, sort of five, six tonne of the hectare and it's, um, it's handled all of those cereal crops, no problems. But as, as you pointed out, um, there are its limitations and green stalky canola is one of its limitations. It doesn't feed onto the belt well from the chute. So we have had to remove it for some crops. Is that a tricky job or can you do that quickly? It's not a five-minute job, but um, I think, yeah, within the hour we'd have it removed from the header entirely. So it's not something that we'd like to do. We'd like to set and forget and just use it in every crop every year. But, um, yeah, if we were forced to harvest green canola, we'd be removing it. So I guess looking down into the future a little bit, what steps do you think you have to go through first before you might move into an impact mill? Is it kind of until the price comes back a bit or there's more capacity in the header so you're not competing, reducing horsepower and that sort of stuff too much? What's prohibiting you from making that transition? Uh, I think every farmer's journey is different. Um, Some people may opt for an impact mill straight away. Um, I know John Deere and other brands are starting to have it as an optional extra where you just tick the box and it comes already fitted into the machine. But on our journey, I guess we're not backed into a corner. Weeds don't totally control everything we do on the farm. So the more that weeds become a problem and the more reliant we become on just herbicides alone, I think impact mills will become necessary. But at the moment, I don't feel it's necessary. And um, we're running two machines as well. We're relying on a contractor to help us at harvest time. So the decisions that we make also influence him. So we've got to be pretty sure about the system before we buy two impact mills rather than one. So essentially it comes back to that idea of wanting to be proactive, not reactive, but at the same time you don't have to react and get an impact meal even though like it is a Rolls Royce in your perspective as you said before. However, your chaff decking is still kicking goals at the moment and really helping to stay on top of your weeds. I think the chaff deck is doing what we need it to do at the moment and, um, yeah, we're trying to keep our options open. We'll definitely be considering impact mills and the role that that plays but we're not fully reliant on impact mills to get us where we need to be. I think our weed levels are still manageable and we want to use all the different tools that are available to us to keep them in a manageable level. And I guess it's it's still reiterating that there's no silver bullet, I guess, in weed control but, Mm. yeah, everything contributes to the ultimate goal of minimising crop competition and getting better yields, I guess, at the end of the day. Yeah, and I guess we're still constrained by finances after being too dry and then too wet. So, yeah, what we consider the ultimate thing would be good to have, but, yeah, we're limited at the moment. Yeah, I guess it's making the best decision with what you've got at the time to achieve the greatest outcome, I guess, when it comes to Mm. improving crop yields. We briefly mentioned it before, talking about summer cropping. Would you say summer cropping historically hasn't been a big thing down here at Parks? Summer cropping has always been an opportunistic thing here in parks and um, yeah, summer cropping works quite well but not every year. So um, the difficulty has been a lot of people have not made summer cropping part of their normal rotation because we do have a lot of hot dry summers here. But last year was our first attempt at summer cropping. What's your thinking there? Can you explain to me why 
Why did you make that transition? Yeah, like I said, I've been watching other people do summer cropping well in this region for quite a few years. I've been hesitant to try it just because of yeah logistic constraints of sowing and harvesting at the same time. But um, last year gave us the push into summer cropping because we only planted half of our winter cropping program. So we needed to generate cash flow. We needed to generate income from that parcel of land. So we planted most of that to sorghum this summer and um, we've only just recently harvested in the last month and we're happy with the potential of some of the areas. So it's given us confidence to try it again um, if the situation arises. So in particular around parks, what situation would you think is ideal for, say, another sorghum crop? Yeah, so summer cropping is not new to parks. Um, Yeah, my father-in-law can talk about summer cropping 50 years ago, but typically what pushes into summer cropping here is not being able to plant our winter crops. So you're starting with a full profile of moisture. Yeah, you don't need that much rainfall through the summer to get the crop harvestable. Going forward, how will you decide, is it just a set rotation that you'll work through, you think, or is it more opportunistic based on current soil moisture and projected falls perhaps? How you differentiate between what crop goes in what paddock? Yeah, so historically we've been locked into the winter cropping program that we're only winter croppers here and I guess my aim has been to simplify the farming system rather than to complicate it but being forced into the summer cropping space or square if you call it has made us um, open up our eyes to lots of other opportunities and I think summer cropping has a, a role to play in our in our farming system. I think the more diverse we can make it the better. But, yeah, trying to work out where that fit is the difficult thing at the moment. I think, um, yeah, we're going to be more focused on our soil profile and how full it is and we're trying to make better decisions as to planting when the bucket's fuller rather than when it's empty. And so what are some overflow advantages you see to incorporating summer crops? Yeah, I think opening our eyes up to the opportunities that summer crop provides has just made us um, more of aware of what you can do in this area. I think having a summer crop lever to pull does open you up to other benefits of controlling those winter weeds in a winter fallow. You're marketing a different crop at a different time of the year. There's risk advantages of only planting when your profile is more fuller rather than dry sowing, for example. Having summer crops as a tool in the toolkit will make us a better winter crop farmer as well. Sorry, with summer cropping, a lot of your windows are small. The planting window is shorter. The moisture disappears quite quickly. And plant population, variety, compaction, all those things that affect our winter crops seem to affect it more in the summer. So, yeah, I think it will teach us to be better at our attention to detail and those flow-on effects will affect the whole business. Yeah, so it's not just a little change. It really impacts everything, really. Like you're changing when you're taking away moisture out of the soil, I guess, and that has flow-on effects to rotations going down the track, I guess. Mm. It's not a slight change, is it? Yeah, I don't think you can lock yourself into a summer crop program as easily as you can into a wheat, barley, canola program. It, um, yeah, it does make the system a lot more complex. So you would say that, yeah, summer cropping for you, Nathan, is quite opportunistic versus people who've done it for longer, I guess, in this district, that it's probably a, a regular part of their system. How do you find reacting but sometimes you're reacting in a summer crop scenario to everything falls into place so you're going to go ahead with the sorghum down the track would you envision that you too would become a regular part of your enterprise i think it's been helpful for us to open our eyes up to the possibility of summer cropping and i think this stage i see it more as an opportunistic crop for our business but yeah if we had more access to labor and 
yeah, more access to more plant and equipment. I think that summer cropping could become a part of our, our normal program. But yeah, that's down the track in my opinion. I think um, trying to keep things simple at the moment. You're dipping your toes in the water, trying to see what it's like and then hopefully that leads to more confidence to maybe include that in the future or yeah, see where it goes. Yeah, it's, it's been a good example, a good experience, and it's taught us that there is good potential with sorghum in this area, which is not widely grown in this area. But um, it's also opened our eyes up to um, you know, summer and winter cropping is a very complex system, and to do it well, it takes a lot of expertise and a lot of resources. To, yeah, I don't think we're quite at that stage yet. You've said you've benefited from other farmers in this district who've done similar things to you like in terms of summer cropping and you've benefited from other agronomists talking to them do you see a lot of value in maintaining and building networks to benefit from other people's expertise yeah i think i've spent my whole lifetime learning from other people i think um the wheel's still round um we should just utilize other people's experiences and other people's knowledge to grow our own i think we're all standing on the shoulders of previous generations and people that have taken us this far so yeah, it's my aim to learn from others as much as I can and to bring that knowledge back to our business and grow our business so that we can help other people learn as well. That's great, Nathan. Thanks very much for coming on the show and letting us have a bit of insight in what goes on here at Oriel, just outside of Parks, and hope the rest of the season turns out well for you. Okay, thanks, Tim. Um, and yeah, like I said, it's a team effort. There's a lot of people that have helped us get to here and a lot of people that continue to do the work day to day and there's a lot that we can learn from each other. Thanks for listening. This podcast was brought to you by Central West Local Land Services. Local Land Services delivers advice and support to farmers, landholders and the community across New South Wales. To learn more, you can find us online by searching for Central West Local Land Services. If you'd like more information about the topics we discussed today, as well as links to relevant articles, fact sheets, events and other helpful resources, we've added those into the show notes for this episode. You can find them by tapping or swiping over the cover art in your podcast player now. Hey, and while you're there, please leave us a five-star review. It really helps other farmers find the show. I'm your host, Narily Brennan, and I'll chat to you next time.